number of years ago, we um, were getting ready to go into missions training, because that's what you do first when you feel like God's called you to go into ministry. This particular mission we were with, New Tribes Mission, they had two years of training, but they had a requirement before you go into training, and that's that you have to be debt-free. So she and I had been out of college not too, too long, and we still had a number, um, we had a, a, quite a bit of debt to pay off. And so as we approached that time, this was the fall of 2003, we got connected to a church called Summit in Loganville. And we weren't there very long before the pastor, his name is Butch Butcher, when he found out that we were, we were wanting to be missionaries, it's like they adopted us. They got really excited about what God was going to do through our family, and they really got behind us. So it was the fall of 2003, it was January of 2004, we were planning on going into missions training, but we still had this debt that we had to pay off before we were eligible. And so we went ahead in faith and set the date, and then Summit said they were going to give us a commissioning service. And I'll never forget that service, it was in both morning services, and they commissioned us, and each time they closed the service they would say, we're going to take up a love offering for this young couple because they were as excited about what God for her, had for us as we were. And so the day came and, and the, the day closed and we had no idea. We, we thought, you know, these guys are going to be generous. They like us. We like them. But we had no idea that that day that God would raise $7,000. And that enabled us not only to pay off the remainder of our school debt, but it gave us a little bit of pocket money to get moved from Georgia to Mississippi. So what that did was up to that point, we, we had felt moved by God, we had felt led by God, but when we were facing this huge debt, we kind of felt like we had some doubts. You know, is this really where God is leading? But when God provided in that powerful way, and it was clearly something that He did, moving on the hearts of His people, it removed all of our doubts. And we knew that this was the way that God was leading. Now we have all undertaken projects that were challenging enough for us to have doubts, right? Think about your life. When did you first begin to believe that you could finish the work? Wasn't it when you completed that first critical step? You know, when you, when you passed the written portion of your driver's test? Anybody experienced that? You know, I actually failed my first driver's test. I, I tell you, I was driving along and this stop sign was hidden behind a bush. I promise you, it, it wasn't there. But when you pass that written test and you're like, man, I think I can do this. Or you pass that first class, right? And you think, I'm never going to make it. What about when you secure that second date? Huh? It's like you have the first date and you're wondering, is it going to work out? And then you ask for the second date and they say yes. You landed that first job. All that fear and doubt you experience turns into joy. It turns into hope and anticipation. Today we're going to finish the story of Nehemiah. We're going to see how God used the completion of a wall as a springboard to do work in them. Because what he had done, he did something incredible for them, and now he's going to shift toward doing work in them and in their hearts. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Now, don't be afraid. I know that said chapter 6 through 10, just selected portions. Don't get nervous. So beginning in verse 15 of chapter 6. I'm going to just read a couple verses here. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help 
of God. So the wall was completed in 52 days, a very short time, not even three months since Nehemiah arrived on the scene and they completed this work. Now all of the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because it was clear. I mean, look at these feeble Jews and they had completed an incredible work in 52 days. So God was behind it. You know, when something is completed, all doubt is removed. Now there's a neighborhood just around the corner from us they opened up, got their sign, they started to build a couple of spec houses, but then the developer ran out of money when the market tanked, and those spec houses went unfinished. And you can just imagine what happened next. Slowly, gradually, the grass starts to grow. The property gets run down. People start looting the spec houses. And then not too long after that, you know, the place is overgrown and unused. And several years later, now they finally put a gate to lock it up, taken down the sign, and it's like they've given up. But it's because the work on the spec houses wasn't completed. But when a neighborhood is finished, what happens? People begin to move in, and we watch it slowly come to life. So the completion of the wall was a watershed moment for the people in this story. Slowly they had begun to believe that something great was possible, and now it had happened. And so God did something for them, and it opened their hearts to his influence in a way they would not have been open otherwise. And then they gather all together in a square to listen as Ezra reads from the law, because for years now, they haven't even dusted off the word of God. And so now Ezra the scribe's going to just, he's got a podium, he's got him out there, and he's just going to read the word of God to him. So turn to chapter 8, we're going to read verses 5 through 10. So the stage is set for God to work in them. Ezra opened the book, all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So why did the people respond to this? They were moved by what God had done to worship who he is. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you were in need, where you needed somebody to do something for you that was in uniform? When did you recognize them as a hero? When we think about the military, when do we recognize somebody's actions as heroic. It's when they act, and then we consider them a hero. Recently, I was doing a ride-along. You know, I've been doing this with the police department. Marsha's been helping me out, and we got called out to a shoplifting call at Walmart, and so we got there, and the manager there was clearly shaken up. I mean, the, the lady had threatened her with mace. I mean, she had, had kind of gone over the top because she was trying to en enable her cohorts to steal, but they, they kind of figured out what was going and ran them out. But anyway, the lady was comforted by the presence of the police officer. But as the conversation unfolded, and we began to understand that these people had a 30-minute head start, they had out-of-county plates, the police weren't really going to be able to do anything about it. And you saw the person that was initially comforted by the presence of the police officer, their attitude started to turn sour, and they started to feel frustrated because they were expecting that the cops would do something, but they weren't able to. But in this situation, with the Israelites, God had come through. God had done the job. God had helped them build the wall. And now they're open to his influence. You know, they also knew they didn't deserve God's favor. 
know, up until this point, these people had done nothing to improve their situation. And up until recently, they were either victims of or perpetrators of exploitation of the most heinous kind. They were exploiting children, buying and selling family members. So they're, they're, res- they're open to God, but they're also recognizing their sin before God. Continuing on in verse 7 of chapter 8. Actually, let's go ahead and read verse 8 because there's just a lot of names that I don't want to bother reading. But the Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So if you don't know much about the temple, the Levites' job was to teach people what the law meant. So they were assisting in instructions. You've got Ezra, he's teaching from something like a podium, and you've got the Levites out in this huge crowd, and they're helping people face-to-face understand what the teaching means. Now this had been their job all along, but apparently they hadn't been doing their job. Were they indifferent? You know, Were they scared? Why, why hadn't they been doing their job? Were they hopeless? Or were they possibly complicit in the bad things that had been going on? But regardless, God's mercy now extends to these previously inactive instructors. Continuing on in verses 9 and 10, we get into the meat of the story. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they're just listening to the word of God, and their natural response is to mourn and weep. Obviously, they're deeply regretful, but what are they upset about? I mean, I'm sure they're upset that they've offended God, but I think there's a deeper sorrow here. You know, in our lives, our deepest regrets... Or what might have been. All this time they've had a powerful, just, and merciful God. Just desiring, waiting to help them. And they've chosen instead to to live as if he doesn't exist. To live as if God doesn't matter. To live as if God's leadership isn't essential to a satisfying life. So they're really upset that they've missed out on an opportunity to be led by God. Think of the broken families, shattered lives, and innocence lost that could have been avoided. People who were treated as commodities and damaged by sordid business practices could have been neighbors, could have been friends. And even though the regret is valid, Nehemiah orders them to stop. This day is holy to the Lord. Now, we can relate to this, right? When we've messed up, when we've made the wrong choice and we're having to experience the consequences. But I believe that God would challenge us with something different to do first. I mean, what might grief and regret have led to in this situation? Blaming, shaming. Think about it. These are neighbors. Physical violence might have occurred. And a negative focus would have blunted their ability to capitalize on this incredible thing that God's done in their midst. To celebrate what God has done. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know what God has done for them and through them? It's now like it's opening a door to work in them. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a powerful truth I've been meditating on all week. You know, worry and regret, it's like they sap our strength. They just suck it away. But an attitude of thankfulness and rejoicing for what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, it's like it builds our strength. Has anybody ever had a washing machine overflow? Raise your hand. Yes, most all of us, right? Somebody had a dishwasher overflow this week, right? Kelvin, yeah, that's right. So what happens when it overflows? It's kind of a mess, but we, it's, what happens is we find out what's inside. What's been inside all along comes out. And what Scripture teaches us is like our hearts are like that. Whatever we fill them up with, eventually it fills up to overflowing and it spills out. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we fill our hearts with thankfulness and rejoicing, it will naturally spill out. To think of it another way, who's going to be more productive at work? Is it the happy, joyful person that people kind of pick on a little bit? Or is it the cynical person? I mean, they always see the glass as half empty. They, they, they're suspicious of management. They're suspicious or frustrated or irritated with customers. But then you've got that rare person, they're just joyful, they're happy. It's clear that that's flowing, overflowing, and spilling out of their hearts. You know, it's, it is faith that enables us, faith in God that enables us to continue to be childlike in the ways that endear people to us and draw people to our God. I hesitated before telling this story, but this morning, or this week, I was at Wendy's eating lunch with Matt and Lee, and uh, as we finished lunch, Lee decided to do something kind of, I mean, you could argue it was a little bit childish. It was really funny, and I'm not even going to tell you what he did. Should I? No, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you later. Just ask me. But at the, we were all kind of laughing in the parking lot about what he had done, because it was so funny. He'd, he'd, got, he'd gotten the manager involved, embarrassed her, he embarrassed me, he embarrassed poor Matt. Matt had to leave the store at one point. But I was impressed, you know, so many times with Lee, it's like he, he has fun in a way that's kind of childlike, but it's childlike in a way that's endearing, right? I mean, there's, when, how, how can we have that faith, that joy, that enjoyment of life, except if we have faith in a God who loves us and cares for us and takes care of us? And it's like it fills us up to overflowing, and then it spills out in sometimes comical ways. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. So, the joy of the Lord is your strength, but then there is a time for confession. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And they're serious about this. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So now they shift to confessing their sins. But it was crucial for them to rejoice first. You know, we'll deal with the mess, but let's deal with it from a position of thankfulness, from a position of rejoicing. Look what God has done. Okay, now let's address the mess. Now let's confess the mess. And then in this passage, 
And I'm not going to read it all for you. He talks about Abraham and how God led Abraham. He talks about the Exodus and how God did incredible things to rescue his people. He talks about Mount Sinai and how there's an agreement between them and God. And then they confess their rebellion again. Continuing on in verse 16 of chapter 9. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But key in on this, who God is. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. So our God is forgiving, gracious, compassionate. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the same pattern. The Israelites sin. They go into slavery. They cry out to God for deliverance, and God sends a deliverer. And then they sin again, and then they go into slavery, and then they cry out to God for deliverance, and God sends them to the deliverer. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't desert them, even when they deserve it. Look at the God that we serve. Verses 33 through 35. They say that God is just. And all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or your warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. So look at what God's done in their heart. I mean, He did something for them. He helped them rebuild the wall, but now their hearts are open. They're laid bare. They're rejoicing, but they're confessing, and they're recognizing that they have some, th some sin that needs to be atoned for. And then verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10. Just read verse 29. And, and all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God. And to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So now finally, it's like they're asking God and saying, we're going to obey you. We're going to follow you. And we want you to not only rebuild the wall, which you've already done, but we want you to rebuild our lives as well. In this story, truly it is God's kindness that leads them to repentance. Look at what he's done for them so that he can work in them. What do we learn about God from this story? Number one is that God's hand can be seen. Now, in the beginning, it's only seen really by one person. Nehemiah in the king's court, he recognizes he has a burden. He moves beyond prayer to participation and then he sees God's hand. And then he goes on site and he begins to recruit the stakeholders to do a great work. And then slowly, incrementally, more and more people become aware, hey, something's going on. God is up to something. And then at the end, everybody sees God's hand, including their enemies, including the detractors who don't want them to succeed. God's hand can be seen. And the encouraging thing is it only takes a few people who are sensitive to God's leading to begin to start a project or a movement where by the end of it, Everybody sees that God's hand is at work. Number two is that God moves people. He doesn't squeeze people. God doesn't move Nehemiah with pressure. He moves Nehemiah with compassion. 
God doesn't move the Israelites with threats. He moves the Israelites with an inspired leader. God isn't interested in forcing your hand or squeezing things out of you. He wants you to entrust him with the things that are most precious to you. You know, in China, many times we'd see a little, little child walking around in the neighborhood and then have an orange or a piece of fruit or a cookie in their hand. And the mother would kind of encourage the child gently when they would encounter another child, hey, whatever's in your hand, give it away. You know, whatever's in your hand, the fruit or the cookie, give it to this other child. And the child was often reluctant, right? Because they don't want to give up what's theirs. Hey, this is mine. But when the child would offer that to the other child, because they're training them to be generous, the mother would reach into her bag and pull out another cookie or another piece of fruit and place it in the child's hand. And it's like she was training that child to trust that if they would give what they had to give, that the mother herself would provide. And I think that's what God is moving us to do in our own lives. He's saying, if you'll be generous, if you'll serve, if you'll give, if you'll do what I've called you to do, and you'll give of your own self, that there's more where that came from. And I will provide for you. God wants to move us. He doesn't want to squeeze us, right? Isn't that sometimes how we feel? God wants things from us, but he also wants things for us. Number three is his words are powerful. When they're listening with prepared hearts and with teachers to help them understand what is happening, they are deeply affected by God's words. They're both convicted and they're comforted. So what about us? How can we return to God? How can we return to God? Number one, and today I would challenge you to build your strength. Build your strength. And what is your strength? The joy of the Lord is your strength. But how does this work? huh? Because it's so easy to focus on what we don't have, what's not going right, the relationships that are faltering, the bills that are going unpaid. But I would challenge you to thank God and rejoice for what he has done for you. And in doing so, you will build your strength. Think about the life that he's given you. Think about the family that he's given you. I'm not saying it's perfect, right? But you do have people in your life that he's given you. What about the income that he's provided for you? Maybe it's not enough, but it's something. What about the church family that he's provided you? We got a sampling of the quality of this fellowship Thursday night. We had a little get-together at our home, and we enjoyed so much having everybody out on our front lawn, eating together, enjoying each other's company. And I'm just so blessed that so quickly it feels like God has given us a group of friends to enjoy. And I'm very thankful for that. We don't take that for granted. We've spent many years abroad. And fellowship is a, is a lack in the lives of missionaries. So thank God for your church family. Thank God for the protection that he's given you. Thank God for the forgiveness that he's provided. Focus on what you do have and what God has done. And what it'll do is it'll build your strength until it overflows, spills out. Thankfulness is powerful. Have you ever seen it? When you do something for somebody and they're grateful, it's powerful. And it changes the person who expresses it. Number two, confess the mess. Confession is good for the soul. How is that? 
It's because it affects our posture before God. So this is the way we start, right? What? You know, you ask our kids, did you do this? Huh? What? Okay, so this is how we start before God. But as long as we're like this, resisting confession, we're without hope. But when we acknowledge our sin, it's like this, right? <laughs> you just see it, putting the hands up. Okay, I've sinned. And then we accept that we deserve punishment, right? We're ready to receive it. Then we get the surprise of our lives. Not only are we not punished, but forgiveness is provided through Christ. And then we do this, palms up, hands up. But we can't get to that point if we stay here. So confession. Not only is punishment withheld, but forgiveness and grace is offered with no strings attached. So where are you at today? Are you here? Or are you here? I was on an internet radio show this week, and I was so saddened to hear that many people have visited a church and not felt accepted. If you want to make me mad, if you want to see me mad, this makes me upset. Because when people go and they're seeking God and they're wanting to, to fix things, they're wanting a better life, and then the church responds, they're more callous, more condescending, more cold, then we're not representing our Lord very well. Romans 8, 5, 8 is clear. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't die for you because you cleaned up your act. He died for you because you needed your act cleaned up. So when we confess the mess, the response of the church needs to be to extend the same grace and the same acceptance that each one of us has received. So let's build our strength and let's confess the mess. And when we do, we're going to find a God who's gracious a God who's compassionate, a God who's long-suffering. And God help us, we'll find a church that's gracious and compassionate and long-suffering, that's willing to receive us and encourage us and challenge us to trust God. And then number three, allow God to rebuild your life. When we realize what God has done for us, it opens the door for Him to work in us. So where are those areas where you need to grow? I know where mine are, and there's plenty. Who might be able to sponsor you as God does his work? Maybe it's me, maybe it's one of the elders, maybe it's one of the ladies in the church. Reach out. Say, hey, I'm trying. I'm, I need help. Because what God wants to do is, you know, when, it, he, the, when we break it down, when we build our strength, when we confess the mess, and then we're open to his influence, it's like he wants to rebuild our lives. With him as the foundation. And can you imagine a life with Jesus Christ as your foundation? Solid foundation. An unchanging foundation. Trustworthy. And when you run into somebody like that and you can tell that Christ is their foundation. And that there's been a process in their lives where they've allowed God to rebuild their lives. It's a real treat. And that's what he wants for us. And I would encourage you to be patient with yourself. 
mean, this is holy ground when it comes to change. I mean, that change is gradual. It takes time. There's no quick fix. There's no pill. You know, regardless of what the media tells you. I mean, you can't fix a problem overnight that you behaved yourself into. It took a long time to get as screwed up as you and I are. It's going to take a long time to get better. God wants to rebuild your life with himself as the foundation. And if you do that, we will win. We will win because he has already won. I wanted to close by sharing this story with you of how one group of people responded when they realized what God had accomplished on their behalf through Christ. Listen closely and discern how God may be speaking to you today. The next morning, the people were all gathered before sunrise. I told the story of Jesus appearing before Pilate. The people were very sober. When during our skit they saw Jesus being spit upon, beaten, and finally put to death, they were simply appalled. They were distraught. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Because the death and shedding of blood is so significant to the gospel story, we had rigged a balloon filled with colored water to be pierced by our designated Roman soldier. It was when they saw the blood that the story began to take on significance. Our explanation and portrayal of Jesus Christ's resurrection was simple, but to them, very powerful. The Savior was alive. Then I went back into the Old Testament stories and beginning with Abel, explained how Jesus was our acceptable sacrifice, just like Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. When I finally reached the story of Abraham and Isaac, I said to them, listen, just as a real lamb was substituted for Isaac, so Christ's death and blood has been shed as a substitution for you. At that point, the lights really went on. I could see and hear them responding all over the crowd. I believe, I believe, I believe. I stood in their midst and asked them what they thought. From all over, responses came like this. I know I was born in sin. I believe Jesus paid for my sin, that he died in my place. He is my sin bearer. I lived in fear, trying to please the spirits, for I knew no other way to be free from sin. But God in his grace has sent you to us. I've heard it and believe the death and blood of Christ is payment for my sin. I believe it, and God has forgiven me. On that day, almost all of village expressed belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sense of tremendous relief. The Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened.
Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Village grammar rejoicing that he believes, so does she. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itao, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. We have considered your interest in our mission board, and I'm sorry we do not believe you are missionary material. You'll just be too old and possible. Gloria, don't fret yourself so over those people. Consider your health. You have children. Mark and Gloria, as a church, we are standing behind you. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. Go in the Lord's name. People are still walking with God today. Not only that, but they're now planting churches themselves. I've actually met Mark in a missionary training center. But thinking about that story, when they realize what God had done through them, through Christ, and it sunk in what he had done for them, then it opened their hearts for him to work in them. And that's what God wants for us. You know, what if we were willing to build our strength, to focus on what we have in Christ, what God's given us, and then we're willing to confess the mess and allow God to rebuild our lives with Him as the foundation? What might things look like for us in the long run? What might things look like for us in the short run? Let's submit ourselves to this process and see what God does. Pray with me. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for this story and the example that we've just seen, God. You're a good God. You don't want to take from us. You don't want to squeeze us. You're just a loving Father who's just hoping, desiring, wishing that we would just look to you, that we would 
rejoice in what you've done. Rejoice in what you've provided through Jesus and that we would confess to you our sin and our brokenness, Lord. And that we would change our posture, that we wouldn't stand back with arms folded, God, but that we would acknowledge what is true, that you are good and you are true and you are right and that we're not, Lord, and that we struggle and that we make the wrong choice. And in that process, God, it's like you open our hearts and you're ready to show up with the tool belt on and help us rebuild our lives so that we can be standing on a firm foundation, a trustworthy foundation, which is what you are, Jesus. You're the cornerstone. And so as we move into this time of invitation, God, if there's somebody here this morning that has a decision to make, has a response to give, I pray that you would open them to do it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.